So if you had a magic wand, what would you do for the planet today? I would. <laughs> I would just bring back all of the forests. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Nature Magic, a positive voice for nature from Ireland. My name is Mary Birmingham, and today I'm talking to a friend of the seals, Melanie Croce, Executive Director of Seal Rescue Ireland. Melanie is an environmental scientist, and her work includes consulting on the BP oil spill response on the Gulf Coast, and working with sea turtles and endangered primates in Equatorial Guinea. Melanie runs a 24-hour hotline for injured seals, the All-Ireland Seal Rescue Network. She shops for two tons of fish a week and is developing the innovative Watershed Restoration Tree Planting Project that directly impacts on Irish sea water quality. Welcome, Melanie Croce. Hi, Melanie. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, we spoke to Susan Kerwin from the Bats Hospital uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was so inspiring. And it's really cool today to be speaking to Melanie Croce, who is the executive director for the Seal Rescue Island. Um, can you explain a little bit about Seal Rescue Island and what you do? Absolutely. So Seal Rescue Ireland is a charity that is dedicated to the rescue, rehab, and release of sick, injured, and orphaned seals all across Ireland. Um, we're the only seal rescue center um, within the Republic of Ireland, so we're responsible for the entire coastline. Um, we're based down in Court Town in County Wexford, um, and in addition to being a wildlife rehab center, we're very, very dedicated to proactive conservation as well, which means protecting the environment and therefore protecting the wildlife within. So we do lots of education, outreach, um, habitat conservation, and habitat restoration work now. That's fantastic. Yeah, we'll go back to that at some stage because I saw all the things on the website that you do. Um, so a lot of initiatives going on. Um, just before we press record, you're explaining how the lockdown um, has lots of people are out on the beaches and you and it's popping season now. So do you yes. want to tell us what's happening in the seal sanctuary at the moment? Sure. So right now it's right smack dab in the middle of gray seal pupping season. Um, so that means lots of gray seals are having their babies. And just like with any um, animal, the, the most vulnerable are the young. Um, so the little tiny newborn pups, they, you know, they're not big and strong enough to survive the world on their own. Um, and so this is the time that they're the most vulnerable to injuries, to illnesses. Um, and unfortunately, we are getting a lot of storms. So that makes it a really hard start to life so we're kind of getting uh we're kind of got a lot of seals at the moment <laughs> really and what happens in the storms do the pups get battered on the beach or or the mothers get injured or what's yeah sort of Honestly, both. Um, so because of climate change, the severity and frequency of storms are on the rise, which we, we've all seen. Um, and so what, why that makes it particularly hard for gray seal pups is when they're born, they have a fluffy white lanugo coat and they're not supposed to enter the water till they're about three or four weeks old and they molt that coat. So that means for the first three or four weeks, they have to stay up on the beach and their mother will come nurse it. And then um, she'll go for a swim. She'll kind of go out and hunt and she'll come back to it. So those pups are left on the beach for periods of time on their own. So when these storms are coming in, the storm surge is actually coming up above the high tide level. So areas the, the that 
historically would have been up above water are now they're getting swept out so they can become exhausted they can drown they can become injured getting bashed into rocks um, and they can get separated from their mothers and if that happens too early then they haven't had a chance to put on enough blubber and they'll have very very low chances of survival wow yeah i remember years ago on trot beach in Kinvara, we came across a seal pup and we actually knew that the mothers leave them there so we didn't touch it um but my son who was five at the time went near it and it was really cross it was, <laughs> yes. they, can they get really cross oh it was, they, it was like it was really yes. cross it was kind of barking and you know yes. trying to protect itself yeah um, well the thing to remember is um when they're on land they're very vulnerable you know they're built for speed and agility in water um so when they're on land they can't get away quickly um so they kind of they have to be aggressive that's their only defense mm -hmm. um so yes and unfortunately we do get a lot of seals that get attacked by dogs um and some of them don't survive it's a really really big issue so one of the biggest messages that we tell to the public is to please please give wildlife space and if you are on a beach where seals are known to rest please keep your dog on a lead because they can do a lot of damage and the seals, as you know, um, they can bite back and it can be dangerous for the dogs. Um, and they're closely related. So there is a risk of zoonotic disease transfer. So your dog could actually get sick from getting in contact with the seal. So it's just another reason to keep a nice, safe separation there. Mm, wow, I didn't know that. Lots of really interesting facts there. Um, how many seals have you got in at the moment? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it, it changes by the day. Um, we're getting intakes uh, pretty much every day this time of year, sometimes more than one. Um, I would say we're probably in the 45 to 50 range at the moment. Wow. That's a lot. So you need to supply them with fish, obviously. Do you have people donating fish? Um, no, we don't. Um, we have a supplier. Uh, we go we can go through up to two tons of fish per week um, when it's peak season. So these, these seals eat a lot of food. So in order to get them to gain weight to the, to the rate that they need to in order to have a good chance of survival in the wild, we have to feed them between 15 and 20% of their body weight every day. Wow. Um, so that means we're ordering fish by the ton. Um, we give them herring, which is nice high fat, um, a lot of fat in it to help them gain weight and it's a nice and healthy fish for them and we get it from a supplier um, based over in Donegal and it's one of the only suppliers that we've been able to find that can actually supply the amount that we need uh, we have a huge big freezer that can store up to two tons at a time um, but yeah it's we go through a lot of resources especially this time of year wow and does he give you any discount or not really he's got the monopoly on it <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Essentially, we have to get human grade um, fish because these are young animals with compromised immune systems. We can't take any chances that they we could be introducing bacteria that could get them sick. So we actually prefer to get high quality human grade fish. And to be honest with you, um, you don't want a discount when it comes to something that you need, because it means if it's in short supply, we would be the first ones to not get it. And we need to have a reliable supply. So I'm sure anybody who's worked for a charity knows that, you know, resources can sometimes be a problem. You have to be opportunistic um, and resourceful, but on certain things that are really Really top priority it's best to just pay the full amount so that you know what you're getting is quality and you know that it's going to be consistent 
Well, well done for doing a great job. Um, I'm going to go to the first question because we'd love to find out how you became a nature lover. I know you did lots of other things before the seal rescue, but what was the first thing that sparked this love? Well, I honestly, when I look back, I, it was just always there. Um, growing up, I lived in a little kind of just regular suburban neighborhood, but towards the back of the neighborhood, there were these woods. And I just remember every weekend, my sister and I going to play in those woods and there was a swamp and there was a creek and we would just play outside all the time and look for little animals under the rocks. And I remember, um, well, now I, I'm not advocating this because I know you're actually not supposed to do this now, but when we were little, we would find little water turtles and we would take them home and we, we had a little pool in the back and we would set up a little habitat for them and feed them worms and feed them um, you know all sorts of things and then once they got a little bit bigger we would release them back into the wild and it's just so funny that it's so similar to what I'm doing now as a career. <laughs> it's, exactly, it's exactly the same and you went through a few different other, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the other um, areas of work? Sure. I, uh, I love um, kind of looking back at the, the career path I've taken. It's just, it's been so all, all over the map, literally. Um, so I worked for the BP oil spill response as a natural resource advisor for two and a half years. So I was based on the Gulf of Mexico and Alabama. And what I, my job was to oversee cleanup operations and just make sure there was not any additional negative impact to sensitive habitat or sensitive species. So I was doing wildlife surveys, keeping an eye out for endangered birds, um, nesting sea turtles, um, also just kind of keeping the operations away from like the dunes and the um, dune grasses. Um, so from there, I, um, I actually, that's when I came here for an internship um, back about, God, five years ago now. Uh, and so I came to Ireland um, just on holiday, actually, and just happened to see a flyer in our B&B that referenced uh, a seal sanctuary. At, the, at this point, we were the Dingle Wildlife and Seal Sanctuary based out in um, County Kerry. And I just was like, yes, this is where we need to go today. So we went and there was a little baby pup, a little premature uh, common seal pup there. And it was honestly the cutest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I applied for an internship on the spot. Um, probably came on a little strong. I remember the manager was a little taken aback. Uh, I was just like, if you've got a position, I will, I will stay. Because, you know, my job on this spill is coming to an end. And I, I'd like to do something really meaningful. She didn't have a position then, but she got back to me a few weeks later and I was on a plane and it was just absolutely one of the best experiences ever. I was there for three months um, doing animal care, giving educational tours. Um, and then from there, I had a few other jobs. I worked for the San Diego Zoo Institute for Conservation Research, doing seabird surveys. And then from there, I went to Equatorial Guinea um, to an island called Bioko Island and did sea turtle and primate conservation work. So it's been a lot of different experiences, you know, in, in rehab and research and environmental consulting um, and a lot of different uh, geog geographical locations and a lot of varying cultures. Um, but after all that, I, found, um, I was contacted by that same manager and she said she needed someone to come run the center because she was about to have a baby and she had been you know, doing it for five years and she just, she needed somebody else to come. And 
you know, at the time I, I was looking for something to do and it just, it, it was, the writing was on the wall. I knew this yeah. was the next step. So I've been here for three and a half years and hopefully I'll be here for a while longer. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. What a lovely route to um, where you are now. And yeah, everybody needs to look at the website because the, the cutest seals are on the homepage. You really pick the best ones with the best smiles. <laughs> so um, yeah, we have, we have a little experience here, which is walking a pig. And we had a couple uh, Americans actually who had done the, the experience with you looking after the seals. So you, you run an experience or you can book in, is that correct? And they said they suited up and everything and they were cleaning out and they were feeding and they were nature lovers and they were picking all the animal experiences around Ireland. <laughs> so they absolutely loved it. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. they went from feeding seals to walking a pig. Exactly. And a few That's other things. Great. I think they, yeah, they walked a llama and I'm not sure, they did a few other things along the way as well. They were going from animal to animal. Um, so what's your favorite plant or animal? Well, um, I, so I'll start with this. Growing up, my favorite animal was actually a raccoon <laughs> because I just thought they were so cute and so clever. And I was really surprised as I grew up to find that most people viewed raccoons as pests and vermin. Um, and it's just very interesting because, of course, now, obviously, my favorite animals, I'd say a seal. Um, and there are still people who sort of view seals as pests as well. And I've just always thought it was very interesting that the same animals that, you know, they can adapt to a changing environment. Um, they're really intelligent. They're really social. They, you know, they're able to exploit resources. Um, those are, you know, animals that exhibit those characteristics. Humans often call them pests and vermin, but we always conveniently forget that those are the characteristics that we share with them. You know, who's more adaptable? Who's more, you know, who's better at exploiting resources than human beings? So it's really, it, it's the similar characteristics that people, you know, seem to condemn in, in animals, but value in humans. But um, really the way I look at it is, you know, these animals are tough. They want to survive just like everything else. And they, you know, they do what they have to in order to survive. And with all the pressures that humans are putting on the environment, it's making it harder and harder for all animals to survive. You know, of course, endangered species as well, but even those that might not necessarily be endangered, but, you know, their lives are a lot harder than they once were. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the habitat loss is everything. Um, I just shared a video on our Facebook page on the Borough Nature Sanctuary of a sable and it had been rescued from a fur farm in Russia and it's a pet now and the girl said you know I don't recommend <laughs> sables <laughs> as pets because you know it's she said it's like the mafia it doesn't do anything everything has a price you have to pay it a treat <laughs> but it'll do anything it was incredible it could open doors go up on cupboards it was taking teddies up to the top shelf it was uh, it was so intelligent and hilarious and the poor old minks and sables and polecats and everything, everybody hates them because they're so clever. They get into the chickens and they're like vermin, you know, and it's so unfair. So I think COVID as well as shining lights on some of these areas, now the poor minks in Denmark are having to be put down because they're showing COVID symptoms. Yeah. Um, so now we can see how many minks are actually being farmed you know and people don't know these things so i think you really picked on um you know you've got got it really right on the spot there um yeah so the next question is have you had any spiritual experience with nature or do you have 
do you feel spiritually connected? I can see um, you obviously yeah. do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up um, Catholic. Um, actually, I, I have Irish family or Irish ancestry, so the whole family you know, is Catholic. Um, but as I got older, I kind of stopped going to church and then I went to college and then kind of, you know, views definitely started to change. And um, I think really kind of recently in the last few years, the more time I've spent in nature, the more I've kind of become a little bit more spiritual. I wouldn't say religious, um, but I would say, especially now with COVID, I, I mean, everything that you're seeing around you going on in the world, it just, it makes you feel kind of hopeless sometimes, you know, climate change and the biodiversity crisis. And my sanctuary is honestly, I've got beautiful woods. I'm so lucky to have woods right behind my house here in Court Town. And when I go out in those woods, you know, that's my therapy. That's, that's it. Um, and just looking up at the leaves and looking, you know, down and, and thinking about how many little critters are, are surviving out there. And no matter what happens with us, that will continue. Um, we are making it harder, but um, nature just is so resilient and it's just, it's got it all figured out. You know, like ecosystem balances, if we just stopped interfering, things would be great. <laughs> and I just feel like we need to learn to trust nature more. So, uh, yeah, I would say that I do have a, a bit of a, a spiritual connection with nature. Yeah. So I imagine you've had to go out into the forest the last couple of days waiting for the results of the election because we're just we haven't got the results yet. And it's now Friday, if anybody's listening in the future. So everybody's checking the website, checking the TBR. There's no, you know, the oh. votes are in. So have you been feeling... Biden a just bit... took Georgia. Uh, do you, what? Oh, we got Georgia. Yes, oh, he took Georgia. I didn't. Yes. See, I haven't checked it. <laughs> I forced myself not to look. So he's actually got the yes. number then. Well, it's, it's not called yet. There's still yeah. about 1% of the vote, but they're mail-in ballots that are coming in late, which are largely Democrat. So it's likely going to continue to be more Biden votes coming in than Trump. So I think we can start to breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, we won't go on about that then. <laughs> it is funny that you asked about the spirituality because I was just saying this the other day. It was on election night. Um, I went out in the woods and I prayed for the first time in probably a decade. And I just looked around myself. I was looking at the trees and the river and I was just thinking, this decision honestly will impact absolutely everything. You know, like the, the, the whole global environment depends on this decision and, and it's going to affect everything. And I just remember willing it. I wanting it to happen so, so bad. And then I went for a walk. I continued my walk. And then I went out to this overlook on the beach. And a seal popped up. Oh. That might not sound significant because, you know, it's a court town. We've got a seal rescue center. We release seals all the time. But for an, an animal that everyone claims is so overpopulated, I've seen maybe one wild seal here ever. And I walk all the time on that beach. So for me to see a seal, uh, like right after I had just prayed, <laughs> I, it, I felt like it was a good sign. Uh, that's a beautiful story. And I think I've shared it before on this podcast, but I was in America with my daughter getting treatment for Lyme disease and she was in a bad spot. And I went into the forest. We were just happened to be on a national park. And I said to the trees, you know, please, can you help? And I had a dream the following day and it was a maple tree. And it said, we're going to help you. 
And the next day I went to the therapist, she was a massage therapist's um, house. And she's been very kindly said, just come over. I want you to meet this girl who's recovered so your daughter can meet her. And I walked around to the back of her house and I saw the tree from the dream, a massive maple in her garden. And I hadn't, I didn't really, yeah, I didn't know Lisa that well at the time, but I said, oh my God, I know the name of your tree. She's called Mother Maple. She was in my dream last night. So it's rich. And Lisa really, really helped. She did um, myofascia massage and everything through the treatment. So she was the person that helped. And so she still sends me leaves and photos of Mother Maple. Here she is in winter. Here she is in her new leaves. (laughs) And how's your daughter now? she's good she's recovering she's it's very slow she we didn't really know what was going on for a long time but Mm -hmm. it's slow but she's getting there so and so what positive actions can you suggest for people to take to help nature well a big part of what we do i mean we do talk about a lot of the environmental like at sri we talk about a lot of the environmental issues because at the end of the day that's the reason seals are needing to be rescued and it's not about the individuals that come in it's about the wild populations that they represent Um, and if we can protect them in the wild then that means they don't need rehabilitation in the first place but unfortunately of course the number of intakes is going up because of the number of threats that they're facing in the wild so the biggest threats facing seals are climate change, um, plastic pollution, um, overfishing, uh, depletion of food sources, um, habitat loss, and human disturbance. It's just people directly interfering with nature, walking up to seals, dragging them in the water, separating the mothers from the pups, which um, not all, I mean, many people when they're doing that, they actually think that they're helping. They, they mean well, but it's really, really important for us to get the awareness out there about what needs to happen in order for them to stay protected, which is, you know, don't interfere unless you have to. If you have questions, please give us a call. We have a 24-hour hotline and we'll be happy to field your calls, field your questions, send us some photos and videos. We'll be able to determine if a SEAL needs help. But the worst thing that can happen is for people to take matters into their own hands and pick up a SEAL. And then at that point, we have to take it. Um, we can't put it back out on the beach at that point because the mother definitely won't come back. So, um, you know, it, it's a waste of resources for us. We don't have a lot of space in the center and we need to save it for seals that do need our help. It's also really stressful on those animals and a healthy animal in rehab. That's just not good. They don't do well. So um, I would say one of the biggest things you can do is give wildlife space. But collectively, you know, we're talking about this biodiversity and, uh, biodiversity and climate crisis that we're all facing, and it seems so big, and it seems like we're so powerless. But we do have the power, because every single one of us is making decisions every single day that's impacting the world around us. And if you, um, you know, even down to your diet, we have three meals a day where we can choose what to eat and what sort of industries we're supporting. And shifting towards a plant-based diet is one of the most powerful things that we can all do to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, but also, you know, intensive industrial agriculture, it's not just emitting carbon. It's also polluting waterways 
and that is affecting our marine biodiversity. Um, and it's, it's, it's causing a lot of deforestation. Um, and the forests, I mean, the, for, the trees are the solution to everything. They're sequestering carbon, they're providing habitat and food for biodiversity. They're cleaning our water, they're cleaning our air. Trees are everything. And we need to protect the, the wild spaces that we have. And we need to regenerate. Um, even if we protected everything we have now, we've already done so much damage that we really need to reverse that trend. And Ireland is a perfect example of that. You know, like hundreds of years ago, Ireland was covered with over 80% deciduous forest. And now we have less than 2% left. So yes, we need to protect the native uh, trees that we do have, the mature trees, but we also need to be planting and restoring areas. So, um, you know, we, we're doing a tree planting project in our local community and it is growing. Um, we just pledged 20,000 new trees um, that will be focusing primarily along waterways and along close coastlines because that's where they make the most impact. Um, but if, if we have people doing this all over the country, imagine how much of an impact that would make. You know, if we only have 2%, it would be very, very easy to double the amount of forest cover that we have right now. Um, and I'm intentionally not counting uh, the conifers. So Sitka spruce, as, as many people know, it's about 10% of Ireland's cover, but biodiversity wise, it's worthless. Um, there's nothing else that can live in a Sitka spruce forest um, because they're non-native. They acidify the soil, they acidify the water, nothing can grow underneath it. So it really is a biodiversity um, desert. But um, I think there's more and more people that are kind of realizing how important trees and wild green spaces are, not only to animals and wildlife, but to us. I mean, uh, for our own well-being. And now, you know, with COVID, there's such a push towards outdoor recreation and, and well-being and, and health. And I think the more we can get people to appreciate these beautiful green spaces and spend time in them, get familiar with the green spaces in your own backyard, and you'll be surprised what you learn. And the more you learn, the more you appreciate it. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I, and we have a native tree planting project as well, but um, we find that we're an island in the middle of you know, um, what we need is corridors to link up all these places. So I'm very interested in you saying that you're planting along coasts and rivers. Who owns this land or how are you getting access to plant the trees and to know that they're going to be safe where you plant them? How does that work? It's a learning process. Um, the, the planting has, it's grown really quickly, really fast. So two years ago, I think we plant, planted maybe, you know, 600 trees. Last year, we planted about 3,000, and now we've jumped to 20,000. So it's not hard to find places to plant, you know, a couple hundred trees. But now that we're looking at much bigger planting projects, we're looking to, for land to plant on. Um, and by doing it along waterways, it, it maximizes the benefit. It's called a riparian buffer. So native vegetation along waterways. So every time it rains, that rainwater runs off the ground and goes into the waterways. If you're dealing with an entire you know, country covered in industrial agriculture, um, then there's nothing to stop all that sediment, all those fertilizers, all those toxins, pollutants um, go, to go straight into our waterways. But if you've got those vegetated um, boundaries, it actually filters out those sediments and those pollutants from the rivers and streams and prevents them from reaching 
the, the sea. And at the end of the day, we're, we're still Rescue Ireland. We're, we're interested in the marine environment. But I think it's really important for people to start making that connection that everything that we do on land, it's not just impacting that one place. It's impacting the ecosystems around it. Everything's connected. Um, I mean, we are an island. And we've got, I think, over 72,000 kilometers of rivers and streams in this country. So that's a lot of opportunity for things to be running off into the waterways. And we know it's happening. Um, I think only 38% of Ireland's estuaries are considered to be of good or better quality. It means the majority of them are polluted. And this is a way to address that. Mm, that, that is um, a really good action to take. Um, years ago when I was doing my project for my degree we have a lake on the farm which is a turlock so it, it disappears and appears every day it's fresh water but it's oh, actually yeah it's very unique in the world <laughs> so it's a catchment area and the river goes underground because it's a cast landscape um, and when the tide comes in which is a kilometer away the river gets pushed up and this freshwater lake appears but I did testing on our harbour where we didn't have a sewage treatment plant at the time and I did testing on the turlet which was water coming in from all the underground rivers and sadly it was equally polluted where all our village so we worked very hard we now have a sewage treatment system but everybody's like why is the and I said well the river's underground it's all going out into the harbour and there's as you say there are no trees along the well it's going down all the farm runoff, you know, through the cast landscape. But are you approaching farmers and saying, can we plant along your river? Is and yeah. fence, so you have to fence it or this is how yeah, so it is. It's a big. It's a big process. I don't think going into it, we realized um, that there's a whole licensing process that you have to go through. Um, so we are in in contact now with the Department of Agriculture. We've got um, a licensing a forestry licensing company. Um, we're actually bringing in um, a lot of experts to do some baseline biomonitoring because it's really really important to get your baseline to know what's going on now. What's the water quality? What what biodiversity you're dealing with now and then to measure over time so you can show the impact that your actions are making and that is going to help these efforts gather steam if you can show people look at this impact then more people are going to be likely to join in the future and you can so right now, around the country exactly so we're mostly working right now with private landowners um, there is a community uh, it's a housing estate right nearby and it had this big huge open green space is just getting mowed so just you know grass um, and it's running next to a river and this is the Aboy River which is one of the most polluted rivers in Ireland it's one of the seven status red rivers in terms of pollution so it was a really really good opportunity for us to you know start making an impact you know right near us so um we've planted about 3,000 trees there and now that we're going to be extending it we've gotten um, all the licensing involved now um, and there's there's different opportunities so there's something called the neighborhood scheme um, so the landowners can get grants for planting native trees and over time those trees um, they, they gather Basically, if, I think it's, oh gosh, I, the specifics I'm not 100% clear on, but um, I do know that after about 15 years, um, they, they stop getting the grants. But by that time, those trees will have been established and it has to remain as, as a continuous coverage forest. 
Um, there's also, there's lots of different um, schemes. I think that there's also some that farmers can take advantage of, but I, I'm really, really hoping that there's more of a shift and there's more of a financial incentive for people to be protecting green spaces yeah. and to be planting native trees. Yeah. Because a lot of those um, incentives are involved in, you know, timber extraction. And we're in this not to make money, but to, for the, the climate change effects and the biodiversity in the water. Um, so I just think that really there should be more incentives for people to be doing that. Mm. And to join up the farms, making corridors through the farms and onto the next farm. I think exactly. Wildlife corridors are extremely important. And if you're planting along waterways, that's automatically a corridor. That's, that's genius. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really enlightening. Oh God, it's fabulous. Um, Great. So have you got an inspiring nature book you'd like to recommend for our listeners? Absolutely. This has nothing to do with planting trees. Um, but my absolute favorite book is Gorillas in the Mist by Diane Fossey. Um, and why I'm saying that, I mean, it is an incredible book. But when I read it, I was in the field in Bioko. So I was living in a field camp for five months in the jungle. And at night, I was going out doing sea turtle surveys. And by day, I was walking the trip, like walking through the forest, um, doing primate monitoring. So there is seven species of native primates on that island. It's the highest concentration of endangered primates in all of Africa is in this tiny little island that no one's ever heard of. And I was lucky enough to be there doing primate research. And unfortunately, the biggest threat to those primates and sea turtles was the bushmeat trade. So illegal hunting. So we would be out in the woods, you know, counting these endangered primates and just wanting to see one, just to see one so bad. And then we'd come across snare traps and we'd come across shotgun shells. And this is a, a scientific reserve. There's not supposed to be any hunting there. So, um, you know, I'm reading this book about Diane Fossey who did work in, um, the, in Africa with the lowland gorillas. And it was the same thing. She was living in the jungle amidst, like with, amid the, the gorillas. And she was out there, you know, she would find snare traps and she'd be like destroying them. And she had conflicts with, you know, the natives. Um, we didn't so much have conflicts where we were with the locals. In fact, I ended up staying an extra year and working with them to establish alternative livelihoods projects. Mm. So basically, if you give them an alternative to hunting, then they don't have to hunt anymore. And either way, if their their livelihoods are coming from an endangered animal, they're going to run out of that livelihood very soon. So one way or the other, they're going to have to come up with alternatives. So um, I started working with the local people to um, train them to be ecotourism guides. So instead of making their money off of killing these animals and getting a paycheck once, they could take people out on guided tours and show them these amazing animals in their natural environment, alive and well, and they can actually make much more money doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's really needs to be. That's, it is happening in some places, but imagine the fear those animals are living in. They know about the traps and the guns. and You and are absolutely right. Population. Yes, and you can actually, we were, we would have to hide in blinds um, and, and put up camera traps to see some of them. Um, and there, you could see their behavior was changing over the years. They were much, much more skittish because they were con living in constant fear um, okay. because they had just built a road bisecting the uh, scientific reserve. 
So that suddenly means the whole area that had been inaccessible historically is now accessible to bushmeat hunters. So it's, you know, it's very sad, but I think it was really, really good perspective. It taught me a lot. Yeah. Well, I really hope your wish is granted. Um, do you want to tell us how is the best way to get in touch and find out about everything at Seal Rescue Island? Yes, so um, the best way to get involved with our work is to come visit our center in Courttown in County Wexford, which is about an hour south of Dublin. Um, and we do have a wonderful behind the scenes experience uh, that members of the public can come and join us for an hour. You'll take a tour, you'll get a presentation, you'll learn all about seals and um, their ecology, their behavior, what threats they're facing in the wild. And then you get to see the seals up close, learn their individual stories, and then you even get a chance to take part in helping care for them by feeding them and also helping us to create enrichment items which is a fancy way to say toys essentially uh, play items for the seals and it keeps them mentally stimulated and it sort of triggers their wild instincts that of course they will need once they're released back into the wild um, another way to get involved in our work is to join our rescue network um, so as this only seal rescue facility in Ireland we are responsible for the entire coastline which means we need volunteers in the entire coastline so um, no matter where you are, you can join us. Um, we give virtual trainings. It's about three to four hours long. You'll be taught how to safely um, and effectively lift and transport seals to our center in Courttown for care. Um, and you will receive a rescue pack and you'll be added to the network so that if there is a seal in your area, we'll call you. So hopefully um, we'll get some more volunteers uh, joining our network and um, we're looking forward to to getting more people involved with our work. Great, well I'm gonna do both of those things. And you did mention they're mostly seal pops, so you probably won't be transporting a massive gray seal no. adult. No, no, no. <laughs> that is definitely, yeah, that takes some expert, uh, expert animal handling knowledge for sure. I mean, even with the pups, we have to wear Kevlar when we're handling them. Right, so yes, well I'm gonna do the training first. Thank you so much, Melanie. We'll put all the contact details in the show notes and hope everyone will call in to visit the seals when the lockdown restrictions are lifted. Thank you for listening to Nature Magic. Please subscribe and rate the podcast to increase our reach to give nature a voice. Also, check out the Burn Nature Sanctuary website for Christmas gift ideas from Evoca Rugs to Animal Adoptions and the newly released Nature Magic book.